Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, why Latin American countries may have some lessons for the U.S. about how to reduce childhood obesity. And we meet one local baker who has some ideas about how to use all of that Arizona citrus that is ripe right now. But first, state lawmakers and the governor face a deadline of the end of this week to come up with a fix to a calendar issue that could cause major problems for this year's elections. A new state law broadens out the margins at which a mandatory recount needs to take place. It used to be a margin of one-tenth of one percent. Now it's less than a half of a percentage point. That's expected to lead to more recounts, but those can only happen once the election is certified. County election officials say after the primary, that'll cause a delay in sending general election ballots to military and overseas voters. For the presidential election, they say the recounts could still be going on when the Electoral College votes are being counted in D.C. And perhaps not surprisingly, there's disagreement between GOP legislative leadership and Governor Hobbs about the best way to handle these problems. With me now, as he is every Monday during the legislative session, is Howie Fisher of Capital Media Services. Good morning, Howie. Good morning. You know, we've been talking about this since last September, and here it is, February the 5th. We have a February 9th deadline, and all of a sudden it's row. Yeah, we have well, a problem. Seriously. Well, so, like, what it seems as though there are some details that are starting to come out about what specifically the legislative Republicans would like to do. Governor Hobbs, at least for some of them, does not seem to be such a huge fan. Well, I think the governor is finally coming around to the idea that she didn't like initially, which is you have to move up the primary. The primary now is in August. But as you point out, if you have a primary then and you have to have recounts, then you have those overseas ballots that can't go out until after the recounts and the whole thing. And they've been monkeying with this for a while. I think there's some agreement on that. But there are some things that Republicans who have had many of their election bills vetoed in the past want now and figured, wait, hey, we're in a good position here because to solve this immediately takes a two-thirds vote, meaning a bipartisan solution, including the governor. One of the big things they want is a new signature verification process. Now, you may recall much of Kerry Lake's argument was, obviously, they let all these absentee ballots, these early ballots come through, and nobody bothered verifying signatures. Right. Judges, Judges weren't buying that. But now they have this plan to say, here's the procedures that that county officials have to follow in verifying every early ballot signature. Governor's not so keen on doing that. She thinks maybe it'll disenfranchise voters. And so they're try- that the bill that's going to be formally introduced today by the House includes that, too. Now, the question is, who blinks? Well, it seems as though this comes kind of comes down to the debate, which we hear in Congress sometimes of a, a clean bill versus I'm not sure what they call the the non the other version of that, but like the one that has other things in it. Um, and it seems though the governor wants the clean bill just to deal with the the calendar issue, not other things like signature ver- verification, for example. Oh, exactly. I think that's what the Democrats are saying. You know, we can deal with other issues as far as voter you know, voter verification, registration, all those other things can be dealt with separately. But again. We're down to the point of the Republicans' power to get stuff past the governor 
is dependent on her desire to have this. So you, everybody's taking advantage of it. Again, I know you're shocked to know <laughs> that people would take political advantage of a situation where they say, hey, we're in control here and we can make something happen. Uh, the some of the Democrats having a press conference later this morning to say what their version of a clean bill would look like. Uh, again, Democrats only control 29 of the 60 seats in the House and 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 14 of the 30 seats in the Senate. They do have the governor's office. So we're, we're back down to the question of what does it take? You know, to I, it almost feels like a used car salesman. What will it take to get you behind the wheel of this particular bill? Right. That's where we are. Yeah. All right. Well, lots more to follow in the days to come. Howie, let me ask you about another bill coming up in a committee tomorrow dealing with a vehicle emission inspections. And this would basically say that if you have a, a vehicle manufactured after 2018, you would no longer have to get that vehicle tested for emissions? Well, this is a variant of what already exists in state law. If you buy a new car today, if you buy a 2024 vehicle for the first five years, you don't have to have an emissions tested with the assumption being based on what they know from historical testing that, that, shoot, that um, sorry about that. That's okay. That, uh, that the, the vehicle will stay within uh, compliance. And so the, the issue becomes, do you really need that? Now, there's a lot of belief that the newer vehicles are probably staying within compliance a longer period of time. Now, that's all very nice to say, but at the point your 2024 vehicle, it becomes 2034, 2044, you know, is it really in compliance? Uh, you know, I know it's a pain in the you-know-what to go and stand in line, have your vehicle tested, and then have them say, well, you know, it didn't compliance, and you got to go back and got to get it retuned up. But there's a reason for that, and the reason comes back to the Environmental Protection Agency. Mm -hmm. And what the EPA is, is saying is very clearly – if you're going to do anything that's going to hurt air quality, particulates in particular, you have to get our approval. So this bill says, oh, well, we're just going to do it and maybe we will maybe we won't ask for EPA approval. This is going to be a real problem, I think, with the governor. Well, so let's let's say that this passes and let's say the governor is OK with it. Does that mean a lawsuit could be pending? Well, I think it's more the question of not a lawsuit. The question is, are we out of compliance with the EPA standards? And without a compliance with EPA standards, then you've got a whole new set of problems. Certain federal funds are dependent on being EPA compliant. Mm. Certain building permits are dependent on being EPA compliant. So it's not a question of suing. It's a question of they're the federal government. They have the power. And you know, we all live in their world. It's sort of like you know, we all live in Taylor Swift's world. <laughs> you especially. All right. That is Howie Fisher of Capital Media Services, setting off alarms wherever he goes, apparently. Howie, thank you as always. You're welcome. There has been something of an exodus of lawmakers from the Arizona State Capitol of late. Just last week, Democratic Representative Lisa Sun resigned amid an ethics investigation and ahead of an expulsion vote she was likely to lose. Then, just minutes after that news broke, another Democratic representative, Amish Shaw, announced his own resignation from the House. This all came on the heels of two other Democratic lawmakers leaving for greener pastures, Representatives Jennifer Longden and Athena Salmon. That on top of the announcement from 
from Senator Anna Hernandez, who said she's not resigning, but she's not running for re-election either. Instead, she's running for city council, where she's hoping she'll be able to get more done. So what do all of these vacancies mean for the future of the chamber? And what does all of this say about what kind of place the legislature is to work? For more on all of that, we're joined by Hank Stevenson, co-founder of the Substack, the Arizona Agenda, and longtime Capitol reporter. Good morning to you, Hank. Hey, Lauren. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. Okay, so some of these lawmakers are going on to other things. Some are running for other offices, as I said. Representative Lisa's son, of course, was just about kicked out. Why are all of these resignations, you think, happening now? Well, like you mentioned, they're all kind of different reasons. But I think the trend here is that Arizona is seeing kind of a state of political upheaval. There are a lot more opportunities out there in the world for Democrats with a little bit of lawmaking experience under their belt than there were a couple of years ago. And, you know, it's still for these lawmakers, they're still in the minority. It's not a great place to work. The pay sucks. Uh, so a lot of them are kind of looking around and seeing what else is possible. Of course, Lisa Sun is now outlier there, but uh, mm-hmm. the number of Democrats that have resigned in the last year from the legislature is, is very high historically. Yeah. yeah, I think the case of Senator Anna Hernandez is interesting because she talked about this when she announced that she won't run for re-election, that she's going to go try for the city council instead. Tell us what she had to say there. Yeah, I talked to her after she made the announcement and kind of asked her, you know, what what's the deal? Why are you leaving now? Um, And she said, you know, there are a lot of reasons here. Uh, One of them, she just thinks she can be more effective on the Phoenix City Council where she's not, you know, in the minority, uh, wouldn't be a a Democrat who basically gets ignored as as many do at the Capitol. But also there's there's the pay issue. I mean, Mm. lawmakers earn twenty four thousand dollars a year. And that's before they get their per diem and mileage allowance. Um, but, you know, city council people make closer to 60 grand. Uh, that's a livable wage for somebody who, you know, works in politics. And she, she just said she has to move to uh, run in this uh, city council district that she wants to, to run in because she doesn't technically live there. She lives a couple of blocks over. Mm. But even that cost her more in rent. You know, so there are a lot of considerations for these lawmakers that, like, just imagine trying to live on $24,000 a year. It's not a good job. That's really interesting. So the pay is one thing. What, is, what do you think this says or does this say something about just how gridlocked the legislature is? Yeah, you know, the pay is part of it. Part of it's just the vibe and the atmosphere down there. everyone's partisan everyone's bickering everybody's all up in everybody's business uh it is just kind of chaos all the time it's hurry up and wait atmosphere um and that gets old you know you don't want to do that for your entire life there's a lot of reasons why people don't stick around the legislature very long and that Mm -hmm. means that you know besides term limits which force these people out eventually Uh, A lot of them just leave of their own volition because they don't like the job. Mm. And that means that we don't have lawmakers at the state capitol who really know what they're doing. I mean, it takes several years to get up to speed, to have some sort of expertise on some policy area, to be effective, to be good at the job. And by the time they get to that point, a lot of them just end up quitting. Yeah. Is it notable, Hank, what do you think about the fact that all of these resignations came from the Democratic Party? 
Yeah, I think there's a, you know, there's a lot of opportunities for Democrats out there right now. So I think that's part of it. New governor, new administrations across the state uh, with Democratic leaders in them. So there are a lot of different, you know, opportunities for them. Uh, Representative Athena Salman left, for example, to go uh, pursue um, a work with a pro-choice uh, organization that, you know, really that wouldn't have been possible in Arizona a couple of years ago at the same level that it is now. Mm -hmm. But the thing that like sticks with me is this huge brain drain that we're seeing from the Democratic caucuses. Mm -hmm. um, they already lost their leader in the House and the Senate last year. Uh, Andres Cano, the House Democratic leader, left to go uh, to Harvard and uh, Raquel Tehran left to run for Congress. So mm -hmm. we already had to repla replace Democratic leadership. And now you know, four people at once leaving from the House Democratic Caucus. That's a huge chunk of their members. Let's talk about the timing, too, Hank, because they were the Democrats are really hoping to be able to flip one or both of these houses in the next election. They are uh, behind by just a very slim margin in both. Uh, and they've been talking about this for a long time, I know. But is it any more likely, you think, to happen this time around? Probably. Like, like you said, they're only one seat away from tying up either uh, the House or the Senate. Um, I've always been pretty skeptical of Democrats' plans to take over the legislature, but they have moved those margins so close over the years uh, that now it's you know a matter of can they win one seat and not lose any seats? And yeah. I think the real question is that second part of it, which is can they not lose any seats? Because last year they were on track to tie up the state House, um, but lost a seat in a Democratic stronghold. And that seems to be just how it always goes for the Democrats. It's kind of a Lucy <laughs> in the football situation. They get so close. And then at the last minute, they screw something up and end up not being able to, you know, achieve those goals. So should they, Hank, have, have stuck it out? Maybe some of these folks stuck it out and, and maybe gotten into the majority for once next time around? Like, is this the wrong time to leave? Maybe. It's certainly more fun in the majority. You can actually get things accomplished as opposed to just voting no on bills and, you know, hoping that the, the governor vetoes them at the end of the day, which is the position that most Democrats are in now. So next year, uh, some of these people who, le who left may be regretting it. Yeah. Did Democrats very quickly tell me, like, did, do you think they expected to have more sway in the legislature because there is now a Democratic governor, you know, in the, in the governor's office? That's, that's a turn of events. Yeah, I think so. You know, you can't really expect the, the capital to change until you change the capital. But with having a uh, Democratic governor up there on the ninth floor, I think a lot of them really hoped that they would be able to not only kind of have say with small amendments, which is the stage that they're at right now, but actually be able to pass meaningful policy and get it sent up to the governor's office. And that's just not really happening. Mm -hmm. uh, the Democrats at their best are really working around the edges right now, trying to change policy slightly before it gets up to the governor's office. But that is still not the same as being able to pass the bills that you were sent down there to work on. Yeah. All right. We'll leave it there for now. Hank Stevenson, co-founder of the Substack, the Arizona Agenda. Hank, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Anytime. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, a Valley pastry chef on how citrus season changes the way he bakes. But first. More black leaders are stepping up and getting elected to office in our state. 
Maybe it was the nationwide protests over the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and more. Maybe it's the constant influx of new residents that keep changing the face of our state. Or maybe it's the pipeline of mentorship that is helping to grow and develop a new generation of African-American leaders here in the Valley. Our next guest says it's probably a little bit of everything, but the trend of growing black leadership in Arizona is clear. Greg Moore is a columnist for the Arizona Republic's Opinion Pages, and he joins editorial page editor Elvia Diaz this morning to talk more about it. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Hey, good morning. So, Greg, let's start with you. You write that there are no there are no real numbers on this. No one really tracks the candidates in the state this way. But the trend here is pretty clear. Tell us just first what we're seeing. Yeah, just black people are stepping into leadership positions. Um, I think we're up to three now at the Capitol, and it's everywhere, right? Tempe City Council, Tempe Mayor, Phoenix City Council, just just all over the valley. We're seeing black people step into leadership roles everywhere from school board to the state house. It's pretty neat. Yeah. So let's talk about why this might be. You outlined several factors in your column that I mentioned at the top there. Let's start with the protests over the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, many more at the hands of police that sort of rocked the nation in the last several years here. How much do you think that spurred things to change? Well, yeah, I think what happens is you can have people who stand outside of the halls of power and authority and shout, hey, things need to change, things aren't going well. But eventually you need people to step inside and try to work from within. Mm -hmm. And no matter how many leaders you talk to or or whomever you talk to, they will always say, I think, that both sides are important. You need the people who agitate from outside the system, but you really need people willing to step in, get their hands dirty, and become part of the change that they're seeking to, uh, to create. That's really interesting. So not just protesting in the streets, but getting inside those offices as well. Yep. Yeah. Elvia, let's talk a little bit about how much you think this increase in diversity in in office here, like, might have to do with with just changing demographics in the state, right? Like, we're also seeing this happen in other communities. There are more women in office now, more Latinos in office now, things like that. What do you think about that? Well, I think it's it's incredibly important. I mean, keep in mind that African-Americans in Arizona are about 4.4%, less than 5% of the Arizona population. So to see more more faces is incredibly important. I mean, even when I was writing uh, about the legislature, I was always looking at the African-Americans and Latinos at the legislature. And so when you look at those numbers, it doesn't seem a lot. And even Greg mentions here that the three Black lawmakers of the legislature, but also they, they, they have held important positions. You mm-hmm. know, the, the former House Minority Leader, for instance, you know, is, is a Black person. But when you look at its totality, then we see a lot more Latinos and African-Americans in positions of power. And that's what I love about this column, that it, it just doesn't look at the legislature. It looks at city council. It looks at, you know, other uh, government entities here. So yes, of course, it is It is important to have that representation. And I think Greg is right that this is because we have so many people coming from uh, so many different places, you know, especially California, too. So mm-hmm. we have the locals and then we have the, the new arrivals. Yeah. I want to talk more about another point that you make in your column, Greg, which is that there seems to be this kind of concerted effort to mentor, to grow a new generation of Black leaders. What does that look like here? Well, so first of all, that's essential, right? If you have older generations fighting for and holding on to power and preventing younger generations from stepping up and saying, hey, these are the areas of need that we see 
and we've got a motivation to do something about it, you can create a rift uh, that prevents progress. And so the thing I think that's super important when we think about black leadership is that it lifts the entire state, Hmm. right? It's not like black people are getting in there and only representing for black people. Just statistically, black people are more likely to be connected to the middle class and people who are striving to get into the middle class here in the U.S., If that is the case and black people say, hey, we need more child care, we need free child care, Mm -hmm. that's not just going to help black kids or black families. That's going to help everybody if they say, hey, we need to devote more resources toward education. Education is going to help everyone. And there are so many issues uh, that black leaders, again, statistically speaking, are just more likely to have a personal connection to either themselves or someone they know or someone that they grew up with. And I just see this as a boon for the entire state. So you're starting to talk there about some of the issues that you think many of these black leaders are going to champion. It seems to be largely in democratic politics, but not entirely. Talk a little bit about the issues driving this. Yeah, for sure. Start with education, Mm -hmm. right? Start with uh, childcare, start with uh, housing costs, You know, just anything that we see that systemically makes it more difficult for people to get into the middle class, jobs that pay living wages. And again, these are not black issues. They're not white issues. I don't frankly even see them as Democratic or Republican issues. I just see this as an issue of a family trying to get into the middle class to make sure that their children have the best opportunities for success possible. And I see these leaders as representing uh, a wave that could really help our state, you know, keep people closer to the American dream. Yeah. Let me end with you then, Elvia, on this. Talk a little bit about what impact you think this might have, this new generation of people coming up, uh, a generation of black leaders coming up championing these issues. What do you think it means for the future of the state? Well, I think Greg is is right that the, those issues that they are bringing up to the forefront are not just for Black people. It's for everyone. Uh, and that's what it really gets me, that unfortunately, minority leaders are only elected from minority legislative districts or council districts because that's how the politics are, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why we see fewer and fewer of, of them. So just the fact that the rest of the legislative body at any level is going to be able to connect with a different set of ideas, a different set of understanding about what what's really hurting and what's helping people that they normally don't have any contact with. And, and let's be real. I mean, some of those state lawmakers probably have never been to South Phoenix, for instance, mm-hmm. where, where I live and where a lot of the African-American people live as well. So I just see the, the the positive everywhere here. I just wish there would be more opportunities for Blacks and Latinos and other minorities to actually get elected. But unfortunately, our our politics and our legislative districts and, and local jurisdictions are set in a way that it just doesn't allow for that. Okay, so you still see some more growth there to happen. We'll leave it there for now. That is editorial page editor for the Arizona Republic, Elvia Diaz, joined this morning by columnist Greg Moore to talk more about this. Greg, Elvia, thank you both so much for coming on. I appreciate it very much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Anytime.
Childhood obesity continues to be a significant concern in the U.S. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention say between 2017 and 2020, nearly a fifth of 2 to 19-year-olds were obese. That totals more than 14 million kids and adolescents. But new research examines policies the U.S. could implement to bring those numbers down, and it doesn't look too far to find them. Latin America. Lucia Felix Beltran is a senior policy fellow at the Latino Policy and Politics Institute at UCLA and one of the authors of the study. She joins me to talk more about it. And Lucia, it seems that a number of Latin American countries take a pretty different approach to dealing with this problem uh, than we do here in the U.S. Absolutely. It was something that resulted from our research. And I personally was really I was really impressed by how different these countries are. I am originally from Mexico, actually. So I have observed and experienced what the adoption of these policies has looked like and how these issues are addressed in the U.S. precisely. Political systems greatly even determine sometimes the adoption of certain policies. And it was something that we concluded and it was clearly observed, for example, in the U.S., it is really clear how states or even subnational governments beginning from counties, cities, states have a larger power than what is observed in the rest of the continent. The rest of the continent has greater federal governments. Hence, a lot of these policies were adopted at a national level, which is something extremely challenging to do in the United States. To get a national policy on anything is really, really challenging. While in the rest of the countries that we looked at, for example, the the soda tax in Mexico or in Chile, these are national policies. While whatever exists in, in, in soda taxation in the U.S. have been cities. It would seem as though if you're trying to tackle an issue like this, a national approach would be preferable rather than a sort of a patchwork of different cities and different states kind of doing their own thing. Is that what the research finds? Like, is is that actually true? Not necessarily. We didn't get that much into the political landscape. It was more what we did find was the importance of having multiple actors agree on the solution to the issue. (laughs) Was it surprising to you how influential the government is in this? I mean, you often think about, you know, public health officials and, you know, individual consumers and, you know, people making their own decisions. But based on your research, it seems like the government itself, at whatever level, plays a pretty significant role here as well. Absolutely. It does. Uh, and and as you say, at, at many levels, uh, even at the city level or the county level or the national level, and particularly, and it also depends on the policy we're talking about. For example, we include we included multiple policies that we discussed. We discussed menu labeling, uh, taxing sweet sugar sweetened beverages, or uh, restrictions in food advertising, portion control. In all of these, the government will play a different role. For example, in the case of front of package labeling, whatever labeling we're talking about, it, it's a regulatory measure that will be up to the government. A hundred percent. Right. Whereas when we talk about portion control, you have a clearer uh, role played by the industry as well. And I haven't mentioned that the industry has, of course, like the food industry has not been has not been pleased with any of these measures. They have taken extreme actions in the U.S. and and, and in the Latin American countries we looked at. 
Well, so you mentioned, for example, the, the sugary beverage tax. I wonder if there are other lessons that the U.S. should be taking from some of the Latin American countries that you looked at in terms of approaches that they have taken that seem to be successful in terms of bringing down the, the rate of childhood obesity in those countries. So one of the initially, I, I didn't mention this, but initially this report was supposed to be exclusively about the front of package labeling, because just like the sugar tax started to be adopted by multiple countries, not only in Latin America, but in the world, in the past, I don't know, five or six years, we've observed a, a proliferation of front of package labeling adoption in the rest of the world as well. So initially, we just wanted to look at front of package labeling, but then we realized that wasn't enough, that we had to look at the other policies that had also been adopted. So in terms of, well, resulting from the front of package labeling discussion that we had, it is challenging to do that in the U.S. Like there's differences, there's political differences, such as the First Amendment, for example, that the industry usually appeals to that does not exist in other places in the world. Mm -hmm. When you talk about front of package labeling, is that in some ways like not saying things are healthy if in fact they're not, or being maybe a little more strict about what can be labeled organic, things like that? Is that kind of what you're talking about? So that's what we suggest. Uh, We can't have, so the front of package labeling as it is discussed in the policy realm is having Uh, we have it in the report, like in Latin America, we have these hexagons and in other European countries as well, just having signs of how healthy something is, is what has been adopted. We do not think that's as feasible in the US. It is really challenging. So at least having more clarity regarding what is healthy and how you advertise these products is definitely helpful for consumers. What about marketing and advertising? My understanding is, based on your report, that there are some different rules about that in in other countries relative to the U.S.? Yeah, so that's one that we did find that could be adopted. (laughs) Um, So, for example, in in Mexico since 2014, network and cable TV cannot show advertisement toward children on um, junk food between 2.30 p.m. and 7.30 p.m. on weekdays. And it cannot show it during the day on weekends. So restricting at least direct to consumer advertising could help. And definitely something that has changed in, in, in these countries in Latin America is that you no longer find cartoons that are, you know how in cereal boxes in the 80s you would have a uh, cartoons advertising for these products you can't have that anymore here i can't i mean in in latin america right what you're describing sounds a lot like what happened to the tobacco industry right where they're not allowed to advertise on tv there are restrictions on where other kinds of advertisements can be do you think it's it's realistic is it feasible to do that in the u.s do you think for for junk food for kids i think it is realistic and it should be advocated for So how optimistic are you after doing this research and seeing that there are some things that work in some places? How optimistic are you that the U.S. can get its childhood obesity problem under control? Um, I'm torn. (laughs) It looks very challenging politically, but it's not impossible. 
my optimism relies on local governments doing a lot of the work, to be honest, more so than the federal government. That is Lucia Felix Beltran, Senior Policy Fellow at the Latino Policy and Politics Institute at UCLA. Lucia, thank you so much for the conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. The Lunar New Year starts at the end of this week. The holiday traditionally has a significant impact on China's economy. With me via Skype for our weekly look at some of the key global stories in the coming days is the BBC's Pete Ross. And Pete, is there anything in the way folks in China are celebrating this year that can maybe offer some clues about the health of the world's second biggest economy? Well, the first thing to say, Mark, is you are right about millions of workers returning home or millions of people traveling across China because it's estimated that a record high nine billion trips are expected to be made within China during this annual holiday. It lasts for 40 days and it starts on Friday. So with that many people moving around the country, um, it's a huge money spinner. And I reckon it provides a pretty good time to check in on what's happening with China's economy. You would, as, and again, as you would expect, the holiday can typically provide an economic boost, not least because of all the people traveling around, but also because of the money that they're spending and the, the things that they're spending that money on, like consumer electronics, luxury goods, but also food and beverages. Now, one item that you would expect to see on most families' table during the holidays is pork. It's an ingredient synonymous with prosperity and abundance in China, and it's used in countless dishes um, for their festive delicacies. I mean, simply put, it's a bit like not having turkey for U.S. Thanksgiving. Mm. So um, you would expect pork sales to be on the rise at the moment. But according to economists, pork vendors have been struggling and the holiday is not going to offer them the respite they'd hope for. Bloomberg says that pork prices have fallen about a fifth compared to a year ago. And pork demand in general has been sluggish for months now. Um, And again, as the country approaches what you would call, I guess, peak pork season, it sends a message about consumption and how much money, you know, the average Chinese worker has in their pocket and how much they're willing to spend. These are signs, this is just one sign of many, that the economy's not bounced back as they'd expected. Interesting. All right, Pete, now let's move on to Spain, where farmers uh, in that country say they'll be protesting across the country this week, demanding the Spanish government come up with a plan to tackle a series of issues. Why are they protesting? Yeah, Spanish farmers say they're going to start protesting tomorrow um, against a couple of uh, against a couple of things. One is strict European regulations and a lack of, as you say, government support to help them uh, deal with these EU regulations. Climate is also a factor. Uh, Drought in southern Spain has hit farmers in the last couple of years. Production of several key crops such as rice and olives have dropped off quite dramatically in that time. Farmers also say they're struggling to compete with products imported from outside the EU at lower prices as well. So they want uh, the government to help them with this. And and they're asking for help with, um, you know, some halt to uh, negotiations with with countries from outside of the EU to to give them a level playing field, essentially. So they'll be out uh, in their tractors, blockading roads starting tomorrow. 
And Pete, this is not the first European country where this will be happening. Um, can you sort of remind us what's been happening across the continent and whether or not you know folks expect these protests to keep spreading? You're absolutely right, Mark. Spain is just uh, the latest in a number of European countries where we've seen farmers out on their tractors protesting. Um, you'll remember, I think it was about three weeks ago we last spoke, and we mentioned um, economic hard times in Germany, mm-hmm. a country where you know you people just expect things to work, and you don't normally see large protests out on the streets. That's something you would normally associate with France. So there's been farmer protests in Germany. There's been farmer protests in um, in France. It started with Polish uh, farmers last year, and we've also seen it in other uh, countries as well, like the Netherlands and Belgium. Um, there's there's a couple of reasons for this. Some can be specific to the country. For example, those protests in Germany we talked about that was partly to do with a, a plan to phase out tax breaks. In the Netherlands, uh, it's to do with um, reduced nitrogen emissions that are being forced on farmers. But many of these farmers, they share common grievances. And and it's a lot to do with EU regulation and red tape. Last week in Brussels, there was an emergency session called um, in regards to the Ukraine and Ukraine funding. Farmers in Europe saw that as an opportunity. So it was mostly farmers from Belgium, but they were joined by some of their European counterparts and they went out on the roads and blockaded there as well. So these do not show any signs of slowing down just yet, that's for sure. Right. All right, Pete, finally, let's go to Mexico, where the president of that country is set to uh, deliver a speech uh, proposing some reforms to the country's constitution. Uh, What can you tell us about those? Yeah, uh, Mexico's president, Andres Emmanuel López Obrador, is set to give a speech today where he's going to propose a package of constitutional reforms, wide-ranging constitutional reforms that will include measures to overhaul the judiciary, elections, pensions, and a number of other areas as well. Now, changing the constitution, obviously, you know, you will understand this in, in the US with your constitution. It's not something that's usually taken lightly, but I think the timing of this announcement is particularly significant. It comes just four months before voters head to the polls. Now, uh, under Mexican law, presidents can only serve one six-year term, and President López Obrador's term ends in September. So uh, he's on the way out, but he's, he's, he's announcing this vast suite of measures to change the constitution. Um, he doesn't have a supermajority, a two-thirds supermajority in, in the Mexican Congress, which is what you require to change anything in the Constitution. So the fact that he's not just announcing one or two things, but a wide, ranging, a wide range of them, as well as the timing of it, I think is of interest. So we'll have to see what he says today. One thing we do know, while we don't have all the details, we're waiting for the announcements, of course, it was said last week, he did say last week that one thing he's going to do is ban the consumption of drugs such as fentanyl. And that will be, um, that will certainly uh, make Washington sit up and listen because the Biden administration has been pressuring Mexico for quite some time now to devote sufficient resources to help stem the flow of the illegal drug into the United States. You'll know that the rate of overdoses in the U.S. has shot up in recent years. It's tripled, actually, from 2016 to 2021. Now, Mexico says it has nothing to do with the supply going into the state, but banning 
at least the consumption of it will be a step in the right direction as far as Washington's concerned. Sure. Interesting. All right. That is the BBC's Pete Ross in London. Pete, good as always to talk to you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here as always, Mark. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. It is citrus season. That sounds like good news. But even if you have just one fruit tree, you're likely facing a pretty hefty bounty right about now. You can donate oranges to a local food bank, ship grapefruit to friends in cold climates, and even we here freeze a whole lemon to use later. But if you want to get creative, let me introduce you to Mark Chacon. The pastry chef came to Arizona initially to study violin at AS. Then he studied journalism and wrote about food for a while, until a trip to the Bay Area landed him inside one of the country's best bakeries, Tartine. I really hadn't seen anything like it ever. I didn't really know that it existed, so I just sort of, um, something just clicked in me. I I went there every day uh, while we were there. Um, I was obsessed with it. Uh, I left town with a huge box of pastries. And uh, yeah, I just thought, uh, maybe I can do this. After that, he was all in. He packed up his stuff, moved to San Francisco, and became a cake decorator at Whole Foods, all while trying to get hired at Tartine. He told me he used to bring homemade cakes to the people there and ask for critiques. Well, that eventually led to a stage, which led to jobs with Alice Waters and at Chez Panisse. Today, he is back in the Valley and running his own James Beard Award-nominated bakery operation, Chacon Patisserie. And he told me citrus season is one of his, one of his favorites here. He makes citrus creams, curds, and marmalades. And I got the chance to make one of his bestsellers with him recently in his kitchen. It's really fun to use citrus in a number of ways, and I would say maybe the most beautiful one. I saw a cake years ago where the bottom of the cake pan, you know, a nine-inch standard cake pan lined with parchment paper, and then you pour a caramel into there like you would for an upside-down cake. And in fact, you make an upside-down cake. You just sort of slice the citrus into rounds after you've cut off all the pith and the outer skin, Um, slice into little half-moons and moons, and uh, lay them out, scatter them over the caramel. And then you pour in, you know, really any simple cake batter. It could be an almond cake batter, um, a buttermilk cake batter, um, something that'll really let the citrus pop. Um, And then you bake it, let it cool a little bit, invert it, maybe heat it on the stovetop or a a kitchen torch. And then when you unmold it, you know, you have this beautiful citrus all laid out, sort of fanned out on the top of the cake. And I think any sort of citrus with caramel is a great combo. So that's what I always think is being able to kind of look down at something from a bird's eye view and just see all these beautiful popping different colors. Uh, We have so many beautiful citrus here right now, so... It's a good way to use them up. I mean, that's a beautiful recipe to begin with. So I guess the the challenge in using citrus and baking, right, would be a couple of things, I'm guessing, and I'm not a baker, but it's sour, right? And so is there a challenge in sort of balancing flavors? That's a great question. So yes, I think so. Like, we try to have, you don't want anything to be really one note in terms of texture or in terms of flavor. Um, So the citrus does tend to bring um, pops of different kinds of flavors. And I think... The key there is, well, let's take one thing like a cream cheese Danish that we do. It's our best seller. It's pretty standard. We use different produce on it. We have, like today, I think that we did some raspberry orange, which is blood orange. Um, We have sumo citrus and we have cara cara. And they all bring something else to the mix. 
three different kinds of citrus on top. Absolutely. And, and you know, you could do a lot more. I mean, like, I just, I feel like kumquat is a lovely option, too. Um, but we just didn't get that one in the mix right now. We'll probably do it for something else. But you just want to make sure you have a good mix of different kinds of citrus. Because some of them are going to be a little bit more on the bitter side. Some are going to be on the sweeter side. Some more juicy than others. So I would say with baking, you know, having a couple rounds of doing a certain recipe will really give you, you know, it is baked in, you know, you've made a choice. I'm going to use this mix and then just be critical, you know, like of your work, you know, see what worked for you, what didn't next round, maybe switch up the citrus mix, use a ratio of like more sweet to sour, whatever, you know, you notice from the first round, but just kind of build consecutively on each bake. You talked about several different types of citrus there. Do they really taste different? Like I know the one thing that everyone says, right, is that Meyer lemons are sweeter. I have no idea even what the other kinds of citrus you mentioned there were. Caracara, is that what you said? I did. Caracara, orange. Um, so, you know, it looks a little bit more pink, I would think. Uh, not like an electric sort of or like pink, but more of like a 70s pink. Those guys are a little bit more on the bitter side. And they're not quite as juicy as, say, um, yeah, the sumo citrus that we have, which is sort of a bright orange against each other. They look beautiful. They're well-balanced in flavor, too. So we try to lay them out so that you get a little bit of each in a bite. That's really smart. Okay. So the other thing I would imagine is maybe a challenge, but maybe a, a benefit of working with citrus, right, is, is that it's um, texturally very different. Like, you've got a hard kind of outside. You can use the rind in lots of ways, I'm sure. But also, it's super juicy inside. How do you deal with that? Uh, so different textures, like the, you're absolutely right. The outside, the, the peel, you know, you can use that. You can candy it to varying extents. You know, like what you're basically doing when you're candying is, you know, you're replacing the water that's in the cells of the peel um, with the sugar syrup that you're cooking it in. So you can candy citrus to different levels of candying. Some are going to be sweeter. You could always go back on the, the sugar a little bit, cook it a little less for something that's a little bit more juicy and not something that's going to be preserved, you know, for the next year packed in sugar. Um, once you get the, the outer skin off, you have basically a uh, sort of a beautiful looking uh, ball of citrus there, and it's all separated by the different membranes. Um, you can cut that, you know, put it on its side and cut it into circles and semispheres. Um, you could also cut in between the membrane uh, with a nice sharp knife and get little supremes of different citrus. Um, in that process, a lot of juice is going to come out. So I always recommend doing that over top of a, like a, a bowl of some sort so that you're catching all the, um, all the juice that's coming out. The juices you know, can be used for curds. Um, you could make a lemon posset. You could you know, make a curd and fold some lightly beaten whipped cream into it to make sort of like a cake filling or a tart filling that's lightened, uh, a little creamy. But you can really make use of all of it. You can also reduce the juices with sugar and make sort of a burnt orange caramel. The only thing I haven't really used is the actual uh, membranes in between. I, I haven't found a good use for that, <laughs> although some chefs have. Okay, so let's go see what you've got cooking in here. So actually, do you want to come with me real quick down sure. here and we'll grab some... Some cream cheese filling. Mm. Oh my gosh, it's freezing in here. <laughs> this is a room-sized refrigerator, I should say, we just walked into. <laughs> oh wow, okay, so you've got huge containers of citrus in here. Raspberry oranges, sumo mandarins. Oh, they're beautiful. We've got it all. Okay. All right, so what are you carrying here for us as we walk back? So uh, earlier today, Steph 
uh, took out citrus. They cut off the outside peel and pith, and um, they cut them into little um, circles and semicircles. And the gentleman that we just saw in the walk-in there, Chef Charlie, he laminated this brioche dough yesterday. That's beautiful, yeah. Thank you. You're pulling it out of the big proofer here. <laughs> yes, indeed. And we've got an oven set, or we will shortly. So, yeah, we're just going to kind of get these guys a little bit moistened and then have down that center there. And then... This is the cream cheese filling? It is. So it's cream cheese and then um, vanilla bean paste, a little bit of starch for thickening, mm -hmm. and uh, some sugar. And this time of year is really great because you kind of get this sort of creamsicle sort of vibe going on when you do the cream cheese danish with citrus. These are some of the sumo oranges. It sure is. Just kind of arrange them decoratively a little bit. There we go. So we got that. It's kind of building a little base of the, um, the sumo citrus because it's the sweetest. Uh, for Karakara, I'm just going to put him a little bit less liberally because he's contributing more in the way of bitterness mm -hmm. right now and for these you know you just have a little pop of color here and there these are the blood oranges essentially they sure are yeah. and um, we'll hit it with a little bit of sugar and then that's something else that's nice about um, the structure of the citrus you can um, get a little bit of a like a scorch on it just a little bit of color the tips will blacken a little bit while the fruit stays juicy mm -hmm. it's just because of all the sugars in there that are caramelizing yeah. And then um, we'll bake them until they're done. And they're done when the cream cheese filling is set. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate you having me out. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much, Lauren. Making me hungry on this morning. I, I got to go get one. Might be time for second breakfast. <laughs> second breakfast, third, whatever works. What, yeah. Whatever. No judgment. That's cool. <laughs> That'll do it for this Monday edition of the show. Thank you, as always, so much for listening. For Lauren Gilger, I'm Mark Brody. Have a terrific rest of your day. Hope to have you right back here tomorrow. That's it for this episode of the show's podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, you can visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Lauren Gilger for Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.